When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Welcome to the History of Evangelicals and Politics, the Obama Era. This is Episode 6, Jesus is My Favorite Philosopher. I am John Fee. On December 13, 1999, six weeks before the 2000 Iowa caucuses, the candidates for the Republican Party nomination for President of the United States met in the Des Moines Civic Center for their first debate. The men on the stage, seated from left to right, were Steve Forbes, the publisher of Forbes magazine, Alan Keyes, the former ambassador to the UN Economic and Social Council in the Reagan administration, George W. Bush, the governor of Texas, Orrin Hatch, a senator from Utah, John McCain, a senator from Arizona, and Gary Bauer, the president of the Evangelical Family Research Council. Tom Brokaw of NBC News and John Bachman of WHO-TV in Des Moines moderated the event. The day before the debate, Time Magazine broke a story about home videos made by the two teenage boys, their names were Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, who were responsible for the April 20 mass shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado. In those videotapes, Brokaw said, Klebold and Harris invoked guns and video games and movies. The veteran journalists then turned to the candidates and ask them if the gun industry, the video game industry, and Hollywood had any role to play in what happened at Columbine High. All of the candidates answered Brokaw's question with a resounding yes. John McCain called for more government regulations on the internet and video game companies. George Bush played his compassionate conservative card We'll talk about this a little more in the next episode. And called for the creation of faith-based programs that had the potential to change the hearts and souls of people who were otherwise what he called decent Americans. 
Alan Keyes connected the bloodshed at Columbine to abortion. We should not be surprised that such a shooting took place, Keyes argued. After all, American young people are taught to devalue life, especially innocent children in the womb. Orrin Hatch and Gary Bauer agreed with Keyes. All three of them echoed the talking points of the Christian right that we discussed in depth in the last two episodes of this podcast. They believe the Columbine shooting was part of a deeper problem. America needed to return to the Judeo-Christian values upon which it was founded. Bauer, a former member of the Reagan administration, said the next president must restore America to the shining city on a hill. While there would be plenty of other opportunities that night for these candidates to wear their faith on their suit sleeves, the most talked about moment of the debate came near the end, when Bachman asked each candidate to identify the political philosopher who they most identified with. Forbes mentioned John Locke, Keyes, the founding fathers, and then Bush, with little hesitation or setup, said, Christ, because he changed my heart. Bachman followed up by asking Bush how Christ changed his heart. Well, if they don't know, it's going to be hard to explain, the Texas governor said. When you turn your heart and your life over to Christ, when you accept Christ as the Savior, it changes your heart and changes your life. Boom. The camera flashed to Keyes, who seemed stunned by the answer. He was probably wondering why he didn't give it. Hatch was next, and he said he agreed with everything Bush said, and then added Abraham Lincoln and that great political philosopher, Ronald Reagan, to his list. McCain, ever the reformer, referenced Teddy Roosevelt. Bauer, the director of James Dobson's Evangelical Family Organization, also mentioned Jesus. His answer was pretty predictable, and though it did get a round of applause from the audience, by this point it was too late. Bush had already seized the evangelical high ground. Richard Land, the president of the public policy arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, was watching the debate on television. In an interview that appeared the next day in the Washington Post, he said that when his wife and daughter heard Bush's answer, they stopped what they were doing, looked at land, and said, wow. Most evangelicals who heard that question, land added, probably thought that's exactly the way I would have answered that. Not everyone was happy, however. Conservative commentator Charles Krauthammer said, you watch these debates brimming with God talk and you catch a whiff of the Taliban. Bill Kristol, the editor of the conservative weekly Standard, said that an appeal to personal faith is uncheckable, unknowable, unintelligible to anyone else. It allows Bush to duck legitimate questions and evade debate of serious moral issues. But even some evangelicals were not entirely pleased with Bush's remarks. Rich Sizek of the National Association of Evangelicals said Bush's reference to Jesus Christ as his favorite political philosopher seemed more like a political statement, and there is always a temptation to use religious faith for partisan purposes. In a piece at the Austin American Statesman, Marvin Olasky, the journalist most responsible for shaping Bush's compassionate conservatism, and the editor of the evangelical World magazine, 
defended the governor's comment against attacks by secular and liberal pundits who thought Jesus should stay out of political debates. The next day, Bush said he misunderstood the question. He thought Bachman asked, who had the most influence on your life? But I'm sure his staff was jumping for joy when they eventually realized what had just happened. On that cold night in Des Moines, Bush secured the support of the Christian right and defined himself against McCain, the candidate who would prove to be his stiffest competition in the weeks to come. Bill Clinton advisor Dick Morris said that Bush had cut right into the evangelical vote. And Newsweek writer Howard Feynman probably put it best when he said, if you had to find one moment that defined the culture clash in America, this was as good a moment as any. People from New York or San Francisco saw that statement by George W. Bush and probably were aghast or laughed or said, here's a guy who's been presented with an essay question on his philosophy paper and can only come up with Jesus. How pathetic. But among conservatives in the Bible Belt, in the heartland, Feynman continued, places where Jesus seems as present as the highway or the strip mall, that was a sensation. There was no doubt that Bush's answer was sincere. It was an authentic response from a guy who had had a legitimate conversion experience. As several commentators noted during the campaign, Bush was not trying to court the Christian right vote in the way that Reagan or his father had done. George W. Bush was the Christian right. I had originally conceived this episode as our last background episode before our deep and prolonged dive into evangelical politics during what I am calling the age of Obama. But after writing it, I realized we needed an additional episode on evangelicals in the Bush years to set us up. So in the rest of this episode, we will focus on Bush, evangelicals, and the GOP primaries of 2000. Next week in episode seven, we will explore Bush's first term in office. Stay tuned. Based on his biography, George W. Bush was an unlikely candidate to eventually win the hearts and votes of the Christian right. He was raised in the Protestant mainline. His parents baptized him at Yale's Dwight Hall Chapel and dragged him and his siblings along to First Presbyterian Church in Midland, Texas, St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Houston, and St. Anne's Episcopal Church in Kennebunkport, Maine. When Bush got to college at Yale, he stopped attending church. But when he married Laura Welch Bush in 1977, the newlyweds started going to Laura's First United Methodist Church in Midland. Bush's struggles with alcohol and his propensity for partying became well known on the presidential campaign trail in 1999 and 2000. For example, in 1976, he was arrested in Kennebunkport for driving under the influence. Laura had a stabilizing effect on his life, but Bush found it difficult to escape the bottle. When his drinking started to affect his ability to be a good husband and father, Bush sought answers to his problems in the teaching of evangelical Christianity. In April 1984, a traveling evangelist named Arthur Blessett came to Midland to, to preach a series of revival meetings. When he arrived, he had already preached the gospel in 300 countries and walked more than 36,000 miles. 
Blessed, in other words, was no ordinary evangelist. He traveled with a 12-foot-tall wooden cross on his shoulder, and his wanderings around the globe earned him a spot in the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest walk. Bush had heard Blessed preach on the radio, and he requested a private meeting with him. They met at a local Holiday Inn, and Blessed claims that Bush looked him straight in the eye during this meeting and asked, I want to know how to know and follow Jesus Christ. Blessed led Bush in a prayer of salvation, and when he was finished, he announced, There is rejoicing in heaven now. You are saved. Bush tried to give Blessed a check for $1,000, but the evangelist did not take donations. But Bush was insistent, so he gave it to Blessed's wife. After the prayer, the cross-bearing evangelist asked Bush a version of a question made popular by D. James Kennedy's evangelism explosion method of sharing the gospel. If you died right now, he asked, would you go to heaven? Bush answered, yes. Later, Blessed recorded the event in his diary, April 3, 1984, a good and powerful day led Vice President Bush's son to Jesus today. George Bush Jr., this is great. Glory to God. The following summer, Bush's parents invited Billy Graham to their summer vacation home in Kennebunkport. George W. and Graham took an evening stroll around the property. And as Bush would later write, Billy explained to me that we are all sinners and that we cannot earn God's love through good deeds. He made it clear to me that the path to salvation is through the grace of God. And the way to find that grace is to embrace Christ as the risen Lord, the son of a God so powerful and loving that he gave his only son to conquer death and defeat sin. Later, Bush remembered that when he took his walk with Graham, he was on his third glass of wine after drinking a couple of beers before dinner. Billy's message, Bush wrote in his memoir, had overpowered the booze. Graham arranged for a copy of the Living Bible to be sent to Bush in Midland. The words of Philippians 1.6, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ returns. Soon Bush was attending Bible studies in Midland. He started a read the Bible in one year program and spent time praying for a deeper understanding of the sacred text. In 1998, Bush had another encounter with God. On the morning of his second inauguration ceremony as governor of Texas, he attended a prayer meeting in Austin in which Reverend Mark Craig, the pastor of the Highland Park Methodist Church in Dallas, preached a sermon on God calling Moses to lead the Israelites out of their bondage in Egypt. Craig said that Moses was at first reluctant to take on this leadership position. He did not think he was the man for the job, but God had a different plan. He showed Moses that the people of Israel were starved for leadership and knew that the intrepid Moses would do the right thing for the right reason. We need these kinds of leaders, Craig preached. And by we, he meant not just Texas, but the nation. Laura Bush started to cry. Barbara Bush leaned over to her son and said, he's talking to you. 
George W. Bush announced his candidacy for president 18 months later. The Christian right loved hearing the stories of Bush's conversion and God's call on his life. Though Gary Bauer, Alan Keyes, and Orrin Hatch could all speak in religious tones, Bush's simple Texas accent and down-home style, coupled with the fact that he had the best chance to actually win the nomination, made him the front-runner for the evangelical vote. But there was still John McCain to deal with, the so-called maverick who drove around the country on a bus he called the Straight Talk Express, was gaining popularity among the wing of the GOP concerned with reform. His campaign memoir, Faith of My Fathers, told the story of the five and a half years of torture he suffered as a prisoner of war in North Vietnamese camps. Bush may have had the Christian right on his side, but his stint in the Air National Guard paled in comparison to McCain's heroism. Like his favorite political philosopher, Teddy Roosevelt, McCain's campaign was built around taking on big business interests, pushing for campaign finance reform, and forming coalitions with Democrats willing to work together for the common good. His religious credentials were spotty, and he rarely discussed his faith on the campaign trail. Some on the Christian right believed he was pro-choice on abortion. Others doubted if he was really a Christian. And all were frustrated by McCain's refusal to kiss their Jesus rings. Bush won the Iowa caucuses, but suffered a 19-point loss to McCain among the independent-minded GOP voters in the New Hampshire primary. It now appeared that the nomination could very well be decided in South Carolina, a state loaded with evangelical primary voters, and Bush needed every one of them. On February 2nd, a week and a half before the primary, Bush visited Bob Jones University in Greenville. 6,000 students at the Fundamentalist College showed up for his speech. Actually, they were required to be there. But Bush said nothing about the university's long history of anti-Catholicism and racial segregation. On one level, the fact that Bush's handlers let him speak at Bob Jones was a blunder that revealed the campaign's failure to understand the nuances within the Christian right coalition. Even Alan Keyes, upon visiting Bob Jones during the South Carolina primary season, condemned the college for its racist and anti-Catholic views. Keyes, by the way, was an African-American and a Catholic. University President Bob Jones III said Keyes betrayed him with his speech and took the opportunity to praise Bush for not caving in to the media. Bush, however, eventually did cave. He apologized for going to Bob Jones and tried to separate himself and his candidacy from the fundamentalist school. He even wrote a letter of apology to New York's John Cardinal O'Connor. But on the other hand, the decision to go to Bob Jones turned out to be a successful political maneuver. Ralph Reed and the rest of the Christian rights political operatives on the ground knew that in the eyes of ordinary South Carolinians, a Bob Jones-loving George W. Bush was still much, much better than an abortion flip-flopper like John McCain. The campaign would need to do damage control going forward. But right now, a primary victory in South Carolina was absolutely essential, even if it meant a subtle appeal to white supremacy 
and fundamentalist religion. After the McCain landslide victory in New Hampshire, the Bush campaign had no other choice. McCain did not say much publicly about Bush's Bob Jones visit until after the primary, but Christian right leaders around the country, now deeply committed to Bush's candidacy and fully aware of the importance of South Carolina, went to work on McCain. Jerry Falwell and James Dobson began talking publicly about McCain's notorious temper and an adulterous affair he had 20 years earlier. Those are red flags about Senator McCain's character, Dobson proclaimed. He compared McCain to sitting President Bill Clinton, another man who, as we saw in our last episode, Dobson also believed to be morally unfit for the White House. A Bob Jones University Bible professor named Richard Hand distributed an email alleging that McCain chose to sire children without marriage. Others spread a rumor that McCain's wife, Cindy, was a drug addict. She had admitted to having a problem with prescription painkillers after a surgery. Some said McCain had slept with prostitutes and gave venereal disease to Cindy. One veteran South Carolina political reporter said he had never seen the Christian right so energized. Bush won South Carolina by nearly 12 percentage points. The victory in the Palmetto State set him on his way to the GOP nomination. Meanwhile, the McCain camp was furious with the Bush campaign's dirty politics, much of which was orchestrated by Reed and his Christian right cronies. After the election, McCain's campaign manager announced that Ralph Reed, Pat Robertson, and Jerry Falwell were to be congratulated for Bush's victory. McCain called Robertson and Falwell agents of intolerance and compared them to black political organizers like Al Sharpton and Louis Farrakhan. As far as he was concerned, Falwell and Robertson, Robertson, McCain claimed, had slandered his campaign manager, were evil influences on the GOP. Three days later, McCain won the Arizona and Michigan primaries, but Bush won 16 of the next 20 and cruised to the nomination. In November, he would face another self-professed born-again Christian. We will pick up there next time. History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button.